Hey listeners, welcome to the first interview-based episode of Dissected, cutting to the heart of health news. I recognize that the sound quality of this episode isn't perfect, but please bear with me. There is so much great stuff packed into this episode, and my guest, Dr. Fritz Seeger, provides a fantastic overview of the article and provides helpful tips for preventing coronary artery disease. So again, this is my first episode, and I ask you to give me some grace And if you happen to be a whiz with the editing software Audacity and are willing to offer some tips and mentoring, please do get in touch. I'd be happy to hear from you. So with all that said, let's get on with the show. Thank you so much and enjoy. Hello, this is Heather. Thank you for joining me today. Today, my guests and I are going to discuss research on the topic of chocolate and coronary artery disease. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Fritz Siegert. Dr. Siegert, thank you so much for joining me today. Why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself and let our listeners know who you are and why you wanted to be a guest on the show? Yeah, my name is Dr. Fritz Siegert. I am currently a resident physician at Brown University. My specialty is a combined specialty in internal medicine, or what you might think of as just general adult medicine, and pediatric. Throughout my residency, I see both adults and children in a bunch of different settings. My residency is four years long, and for some of you who maybe aren't as familiar with what a residency means, at this point in the U.S., I've graduated from medical school, and I'm now embarking on the post-medical school training, where I work as a doctor underneath a supervising doctor who is either board-certified in internal medicine or board-certified in pediatrics, or both. In terms of why I was interested in coming on the show, Heather, I think, you know, I'm having conversations with you, this idea of wanting to present a very objectively focused, fact-based portrayal of recent research, especially with concerns, misinformation, I think this undertaking is very important. And I'm happy to be a part of it. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you're here. So you mentioned that you were doing residency in Providence, Rhode Island. So I don't know if I mentioned this to you previously, but I'm actually from Rhode Island. Oh, really? Yeah, it's great to be talking to somebody who has that Rhode Island connection. Yeah, I grew up in the Mountain West in Boise, Idaho, so it's needless to say a bit of a transition, but something I've really been enjoying. Providence has a lot to offer. Great. So our listeners and I are super lucky to have you, but before we get started, I wanted to address a couple of administrative details with our listeners. First and foremost, Dr. Seeger and I have no conflicts of interest. This means that we have not received any funding regarding any of the articles we're talking about, and information presented on this show and any related outlet is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not intended to provide health or medical advice. If you have questions or concerns about any of the information presented by anyone or any platform affiliated with this podcast, consult your healthcare provider. And of course, consult your healthcare provider before making any changes to your health wellness, medical, nutrition, or fitness regimen. And I'll just jump in and just an effort of 
additional transparency to underscore the fact that I am, while in a internal medicine and pediatrics, or what we call med-peds residency, I am neither a board-certified internist, nor am I a board-certified pediatrician. It is something that I am working towards, but I am not either of those just yet. Any of my contributions today will be solely my opinions only and do not reflect the opinions of Brown University or the lifespan healthcare system that I work for. Thank you. Dr. Seeger, would you mind defining some of the key terms that we'll be using throughout this episode? Sure. So the first one is this concept of coronary artery disease. And the way I think you best simply think of it is coronary artery disease. If you think about first just what the coronary arteries are, they are the arteries that wrap around your heart and ultimately deliver blood to the heart tissue, the heart muscle itself. Just like any other organ in your body, your heart needs blood to get oxygen and get the nutrients it needs to thrive and perform its function, which is pumping blood to the rest of your body. Coronary artery disease then is simply put disease of those coronary arteries. And what happens is over time, due to a bunch of different factors, you build up these things called plaques, which create kind of a narrower and narrower tube. If you can think of the arteries as a tube, such that it gets harder and harder to supply enough blood to that heart muscle. And when you have coronary artery disease, that puts you at increased risk for potentially having myocardial infarction, which simply put just the medical term for a heart attack, whereby part of your heart muscle may not get enough blood sometimes due to plaques and plaques rupturing, where that heart muscle doesn't get enough blood for long enough where it actually starts to die off. Another term that we ought to define is what's called a cerebral vascular accident. That is actually the medical term for what people more commonly think of as a stroke, where instead of now a part of your heart tissue not getting enough blood, it's actually a piece of your brain tissue, facial drooping or arm or leg numbness, um, and then a few other terms are just quickly underscored. This paper talks about certain chemicals known as flavanols, polyphenols, methylxanthines, and steric acids, and all kinds of chemicals that in different ways have been shown to have antioxidant, anti-inflammatory properties that might actually help with preventing or decreasing plaque buildup. A couple other terms that I think would be helpful to address is relative risk or relative risk reduction. That's a statistical term that essentially looks at a group of people that develop, in this case, an undesired outcome, the development of coronary artery disease, having a stroke or having a heart attack. And it compares a baseline group to another group that has a certain exposure. In this case, it's going to be eating chocolate. And they're going to look at what is the risk of the group eating chocolate, their risk of developing a certain undesirable outcome, in this case, coronary artery disease, heart attack, stroke, compared to the group that maybe doesn't eat as much chocolate and see if there's any difference. Heather, could you then kind of explain what a confidence interval is? Yeah, confidence intervals are an estimation of how certain we can be that an effect is due to chance. When we say that there's a 95% confidence interval around the effect, we are 95% confident that the effect is not due to chance. Thank you for that, Heather. 
We're going to be talking today about this article that came out of CNN Health, and it's titled Dark Chocolate's Benefits, a Heart-Healthy Option in Moderation. Heather, you want to talk a little bit about CNN and the author and give us some background? Yeah, I would love to. First of all, this article is from CNN, and in light of the current political climate, I wanted to note that we select news stories from a variety of sources, and our selections are not intended to be political or representative of any political affiliation, endorsement, or opposition. This article was written by Sandy Lamont. Sandy is a medical producer for CNN. She is also the owner and CEO of Health Trust Media, and her educational background is in journalism, so she has no scientific or clinical background. She's writing these news stories because she has experience writing and probably using search engine optimization, which is a method that journalists use to write enticing headlines that motivate you to click. CNN is a for-profit news outlet. When I talk to people about how to evaluate news sources for bias, sometimes they tell me that they shouldn't trust news from for-profit organizations or websites ending in .com. I just want to emphasize that that is not an accurate generalization because some of the companies that publish peer-reviewed journals are actually for-profit, as are many of the doctor's offices that you visit. You may have also heard that if there are ads, you should consider a different news source. And I don't necessarily agree with that either. .com or .org is not a great indication of authority. Anyone can register a .org domain. They are not just reserved for nonprofit organizations. And even if they were only for nonprofit organizations, it's not a great idea to only select articles from .orgs. Lots of .orgs can be biased. We can think about political campaigns and think tanks that also have .org affiliations, but they absolutely have an agenda. So again, I just ask you as a listener, don't look at a .com or a .org or a .net and simply assume that one is better or worse just because of the ending on that domain. Sounds like more broadly, Heather, what you're getting at is whenever anyone looks at any sort of article trying to convey any sort of factual information that you really just have to do a little bit of independent thinking and really scrutinize not only who the author is, who they're writing for, what might be some of the interests at play here. And yeah, definitely. You never want to just accept something for what it is. It's very common for news to be shared over Facebook and Twitter, and it might be tempting to believe something that you read because a friend or family member that you trust disseminated that information, but you have to remember that they may not be analyzing the information critically before sharing it, so you have to rely on your own knowledge of health and health information literacy before you click on that link, and even after you click on that link, you still have to think about where the information came from and why it was disseminated in the first place. Well, that in mind, now that we are putting our critical thinking caps on, what did you think about the CNN article, Heather? What, what immediately jumps out at you? That's a great question. So, the first couple sentences of the article were very enticing. They were as enticing as the dark chocolate they talk about. 
I'll just read the first couple of sentences. Open wide, insert dark chocolate, chew slowly, savor and lick any bits off fingers. Smile broadly as you bask in the relief that this guilty pleasure is actually helping your heart. I'm already hooked. Yeah, right? I mean, that sounds great. I feel like after we finish talking, I need to go dive into a chocolate bar. Well, you know, so what it seems that CNN article tries to come up with is like simple statement that would be attractive, i.e. you can eat this thing that you've been told is kind of a guilty pleasure and it can actually be healthy for you. So, you know, maybe if anything, you should eat more of it. And I think this gets back to when you are thinking critically about any sort of article that is talking about research and your effort to think critically about what actual factual information is being conveyed. I think it's always important to at least click on the, the research article that the news media article links to and you know, at least take a quick glance at it. And it might, even if you don't understand a lot of what's going on, it may generate some questions that you didn't think of previously that then you could do a little bit more reading on. That in mind, I think we could dive in a little bit to the research article itself. What do you think, Heather? Yeah, let's get to it. To me, this is the most exciting part of the episode. I love to pick apart articles and I guess dissect them. So let's go. The article is titled, Association between chocolate consumption and risk of coronary artery disease, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And this article was published in the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology. Dr. Seeger, do you want to tell me a little bit more about this article? Sure. It looks like it was written by a few different cardiovascular researchers who are associated with multiple pretty large health systems throughout the U.S., including the Baylor College of Medicine in Texas, the Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai, the Tricia E. Kern Center for the Science of Healthcare Delivery at the Mayo Clinic, possibly the Cleveland Clinic was involved in this study. So some, at least from a medical standpoint, some, some pretty well-known academic medical institutions. Awesome. So when I read the title, I mentioned a term that is probably not familiar to most people. I read systematic review and meta-analysis, and I just want to take a moment to describe what that is. A systematic review is an evidence synthesis. So what a researcher does is collect all of the research studies on one particular topic that answer the same question. And they basically combine all of those studies to create one mega study. A meta-analysis is just the statistical analysis of those studies. Excellent. Maybe I'll just take uh, a little bit of time now to talk about the outcomes of this study and in particular what they're looking at. I kind of got into this already with when I defined some of these key terms, but what this study is trying to look for is it took a bunch of different studies that looked at chocolate consumption and how it might be related to your risk of developing coronary artery disease, of developing a heart attack, of developing a stroke. They ultimately included six different studies and if you look at all those six days combined, it actually incorporates a lot of different people that they looked at, a lot of different healthcare data, and actually looked at over 300,000 individual patients. And anytime you want to analyze a research article, one important kind of simple thing to look at is just how many people did they study? 
And the reason that's important is because that also then impacts how generalizable that study is to a population. So when I, as a doctor, have a patient in front of me that has a particular problem, I'm going to look at your relevant research studies that look at this problem. But before I can even make any sort of judgment calls on how these studies might affect what the patient in front of me, I have to look at what population or what group of people these studies looked at. Because if, for example, I have a 15-year-old girl who comes in the clinic with high blood pressure and I want to know how to manage it, and I'm pulling up studies that are looking at a population that has an average age of 60 and is male and has diabetes, then that's it's going to be pretty hard for me to feel confident that what worked for that population is going to to work for these maybe otherwise healthy 15-year-old girl right in front of me. Thanks for sharing that. So I'm really interested to hear more about generalizability and how the patients in this study reflected the general population. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, so in this case, I would say just without diving into every single individual study that they've looked at, Given the sheer number of people that they look at, I think this probably does have a decent amount of generalizability. It looks like it incorporated a pretty wide age range, I believe all of them being adults. Of note, though, the overwhelming majority of these patients were from the United States, and then a much smaller portion were from Sweden, and then an even smaller portion was from Australia. And the reason that's important is because there's a lot of different factors, for example, that play into heart disease, a lot of them having to be lifestyle factors. So smoking, exercise, diet, and all of those things vary quite a bit based on where you might live. So the incidence of people who exercise or how many people go for at least three 20-minute walks a week might vary quite a bit between us here in the U.S. and our neighbors across the Atlantic Ocean. So that's also an important thing. So in this case, I look at the study and I think, wow, that's a lot of people they studied. So there's probably a pretty high degree of generalizability. But I also think about, yeah, but it's pretty focused in the United States. So it might not be as generalizable if, say, for example, might not be as generalizable to Uganda. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that question about limitations. So we talked about generalizability. Are there any other limitations that were described in the study that you think are worth noting to listeners? Yeah, I do. So one of the, probably the one that I think most stood out to me was actually found in the second page of the research article where they talk about two different things that they did not adjust for in their statistical analysis. And when I say adjust, what I mean is they didn't look at these particular variables to see if it may have impacted their results. And in this case, and I'm just going to read directly from the article, first, there may be dietary confounders in those observational studies. So for example, fats, milk, sugar, and chocolate, total energy intake, body mass index, types of chocolate produced, milk, dark or white, could confound any potential association observed. So that's a pretty important example because as I'm sure we all know, as anyone who's ever had chocolate, not all chocolates make the same. And then the other thing in terms of limitations of the study, which arguably might be the most important is, and again, I'm just gonna read straight from their article, lifestyle factors, uh, as example, exercise, physical activity, were not adjusted for in the analysis they did. Why that's important is because we know 
that one of the single biggest factors that is controllable or potential what we call lifestyle modifications that affect coronary artery disease and your chance of heart attack and stroke is how much someone exercises. Someone who exercises more regularly compared to someone who leads maybe a more sedentary lifestyle is not regularly working out or is not very active. There's a huge difference in the chance of potentially developing heart disease, coronary artery disease, potentially having a heart attack, potentially having a stroke. And not adjusting for that at all can play a major role in how these results play out. So perhaps if they had adjusted for things like lifestyle factors, had adjusted for things like the fat content in the various chocolates that were studied, there may be very different results. And it may even show that when you do adjust for those things, that there's actually no association between reduced risk of coronary artery disease and even chocolate. Thank you. So you mentioned a pretty imperative word, risk. The article indicated that the risk reduction was statistically significant. Can you talk to me about whether or not that is clinically significant? Yeah, so that's also a really important distinction, especially for your physicians or any of your healthcare providers when you're looking at a study. A study can show what is a statistically significant difference, but not perhaps a clinically significant difference. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I develop a new blood pressure medication that you only have to take once a year. And I published a study that showed that if you take this blood pressure pill, I will drop your blood pressure by two points. And I proved that that is not due to random chance, it is due to you taking this pill. That would be something that is statistically significant. But in terms of whether or not that two-point drop in your blood pressure is clinically significant, i.e. would it reduce your chance of a heart attack, would it reduce your chance of a stroke, we know two-point drop in most cases would not really impact your chances of developing a stroke or a heart attack. That's a great example, and I really appreciate you providing that. And I just realized that I may have forgotten to define what statistically significant means. So I do want to take a moment to just backtrack and define that. So statistical significance means that the result achieved in the research is not due to random chance. So this study talks about how what it found, and again, I just want to read directly from the study, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but Compared with the consumption of no or less than one time per week chocolate, so consuming chocolate either not at all or only less than once a week, higher chocolate consumption, and they define it as greater than one time per week or greater than 3.5 times per month, was associated with a decreased risk of coronary artery disease. And then they further show that the relative risk is 0.92. So what this means is that the overall relative risk reduction is 8%. So it's actually a very small, small, small reduction in the development of coronary artery disease. And you can't necessarily say from the study whether or not it's clinically significant or not. They acknowledge in the study that there's more studies that need to be done. But when I look at that, I don't look at that and think, oh, that's a dramatic change. Whereas I do know that if you were to compare the relative risk of coronary disease and someone, for example, who smokes a pack of cigarettes a day for, say, 30 years, compared to someone who never smokes a pack of cigarettes per day, the relative risk reduction is much more dramatic. Yeah, thanks for drawing that parallel. One thing I want to talk about, too, is this idea of relative risk, which is different from absolute risk. 
and a far better measure of how effective an intervention is, in this case, is consuming chocolate, is actually the absolute risk. So what the absolute risk looks like is it looks at, if you just take the general population, take chocolate out of the equation, what is your just risk of developing coronary artery disease, whether you eat chocolate or you don't? And in this case, this study doesn't address this, but I want to underscore actually another article that was written in, back in April 2019. Um, CNN released this, again, I think search engine optimized title that highlighted the fact that researchers linked eating processed meats like bacon gives you a 20% increase in development of colon cancer. And that concern made a lot of headlines it definitely populated my news feeds. But when you really dove into what that study actually was, what they did is they looked at 175,000 individuals and followed their dietary habits and followed them over, I think it was the course of like five or eight years. And the number of people who actually developed colon cancer at all, whether they ate bacon or not, was right around just over 2,000 individuals. So the absolute risk was 1.5% of the general population. So then when you do, when you take it into account and you convert the relative risk into absolute risk, that changed from 1.5% to the people who ate bacon, it changed to only 1.8%. So if you took a thousand people, 15 people would develop colon cancer, regardless of what they did, bacon or no bacon, and only three additional people out of the 1,000 would actually develop colon cancer because of eating, for example, too much bacon or processed foods. So I think that's really important to underscore, and that might get into some kind of more complicated statistics than any person necessarily wants to do, but I think it does highlight the difference between what academic literature might be trying to present and how a major media outlet might grab onto something and present it in such a way where it's the most attractive to an, a, a wide audience, but maybe not the most actually useful to a wide audience, let's say. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's important to remember the motivation of a news site. So they exist to entertain you and to sell a product, whereas journal articles are written by generally researchers and clinicians who have a faculty affiliation or a hospital affiliation, and they are seeking to inform their colleagues about the research that they're doing. So it's just worthwhile to remember the purpose behind a journal article and the purpose behind a news article. So now that we've dissected this article, I have some final questions for you, if you don't mind. So... First and foremost, is chocolate going to prevent coronary artery disease? And after this call, should I go downstairs and break off a piece of my candy bar or, or what should I do? Straight out the gate, I think those are two pretty distinct questions. And I'm just going to say your latter question, I think, you know, it's seven o'clock on a Wednesday night. If breaking up a piece of a chocolate seems like a good chocolate bar seems like a good way to unwind, then I think I say go for it. But to your first question about is chocolate going to prevent coronary artery disease? What I'll just say directly to that question is I'm not sure. I don't know. And I don't think this study, though, convinces me that it will. But it does highlight or underscore this possible association that I agree with the, the researchers in the article. It should be studied more. But based on the data they're presenting, I'm, I'm not going to be rushing to tell all my patients who I'm concerned are at risk of coronary artery disease to, uh, 
make sure they're eating uh, chocolate at least 3.5 times per month. That's really funny. You talked about the fact that chocolate might have a protective property because it contains polyphenols and flavonoids. Are there other sources of those compounds that you might recommend to patients in lieu of chocolate? Yeah, so I think while there are studies that show an association between flavonoids and polyphenols and methamphetamine and acetic acid, and an association between them and some desirable health outcomes, all of that is actually still a topic of discussion and study as well. That said, we do know that flavonoids in particular have anti-inflammatory properties. It's not well studied enough that, again, I'm, I'm recommending this to patients, nor have I told by supervising physicians to recommend them to patients. But I do think if you're interested in increasing the amount of flavonoids in your diet, they are plant-based chemicals that actually you can find in a lot of different fruits and vegetables. And what I, I can confidently say is that fruits and vegetables will also have other good nutrients for your body and won't have the higher sugar content and fat content that chocolate does. Excellent. Thank you so much. So one last question. What can people do to prevent coronary artery disease? I know you mentioned just fruits and vegetables previously and exercise. Do you want to elaborate on that just a bit? Sure. So some of the biggest things that affect heart disease and the development of it are uh, things that we call, like I said, kind of lifestyle factors. And that includes your exercise, that includes your diet, that includes things that you more of could actually harm you, such as tobacco use. So what I would say is, first and foremost, if you are listening to this and you're a current tobacco user, I recognize that that is something that is very, very, very difficult. But working towards reducing the amount of tobacco you use and working towards in the long term, even if there's setbacks along the way and relapses and things like that, working towards quitting tobacco is one of the single best things you could do to help your heart health and also your lung health and also your brain. So quitting tobacco, if, if you're a tobacco user, is a big one. Another thing would be consistent aerobic exercise. So if you at least are going for, you know, a 20 to 30 minute kind of vigorous power walk a week, that can, can also help reduce your risk of developing coronary artery disease or heart disease. And then in terms of diet, you know, there's a bunch of different diets out there, studies looking at this and looking at that. But what I would kind of just generally say is cutting back on high sugar foods, cutting back on high fat foods, cutting back on processed foods, eating more fruits, eating more vegetables is a good way to go. In terms of the protein you consume, more plant-based protein and leaner protein like fish can also be very helpful in lieu of, say, red meat in your diet. So those are the things that kind of the common sense things, unfortunately, are not profound, but they, do, they have been shown to be very, very effective. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's super helpful. And is there anything else you'd like to add before we close out the show? I think I would just circle back to what you talked about, Heather. I think whenever you come across an article or more likely a, the title of an article on your newsfeed, make sure you're a critical consumer. Don't just ever take what is spoon fed to you. Click on the link, read the article, think about who's writing this, who may they be writing this for. And if they talk about research, you know, click on the link to the original research article. 
normally you can at least read the abstract or the kind of like brief summary or cliff notes of the of the article up front and just ask yourself like is, is what the researchers are saying is this consistent with what the news media outlet is telling me and if not start to ask yourself why and see see what you come up with talk with other people about it see what they think that's a really great tip so i want to thank you again for joining me today on the show it was so fun to talk to you and it's been a real pleasure just discussing this article with you even before we started recording. So again, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your expertise. And also just to listeners out there, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend where you can also share the entire podcast series. Please also rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thank you again for joining me today. I appreciate you being here. Have a great day, everybody.